Today, we'll be talking to Professor David Kleinfield, who is a professor of neurophysics at UC San Diego. We'll be talking about his paper, Reinforcement Learning Links Spontaneous Cortical Dopamine Impulses to Reward, and his research into blood flow and its regulation in the brain. So you'll be learning about how we sense in the world and how our brain is supplied with the blood and energy it needs. Hi, David. It's nice to have you on the podcast. Would you be able to tell me a little bit more about yourself? I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and actually, as I learned last week, this year's Nobel Prize winner, uh, David Julius, was actually one year behind me in the same high school. That was sort of very nice. I had no idea who he is, but... um, But the high school took in a lot of kids uh, yeah. from a broad area. Uh, mm-hmm. It's pretty. It's a pretty dense neighborhood. It was all mostly apartment building, a couple of like two or three story townhouses. And well, you know, time goes by, and I sort of found myself, despite uh, very bad grades in high school, uh, sort of doing science and a professor at a university, which is somewhat amusing. And so I live here in Southern California. Raised the daughter and managed to go swimming every day. Besides, uh, it never gets that cold. And I think once in the last decade, it was cold enough that it actually sort of hurt a little bit every time your arm came out of the water because the yeah. wind would. But I mean, one day out of what, 3,000 is, is kind of incredible. <laughs> Pretty good right? record, yeah. Pretty good record, yes. Yeah. No complaints. This is the, it's the anti Brooklyn. I mean, I. Used to look out my window as a kid and see my neighbor's window. And now I uh, could, could sort of look out and see the sky. And it's very pretty. What are you interested in the research that you're doing currently? So most of our research, a little bit different than the, the paper actually that attracted your attention, which was this somewhat serendipitous finding, is, is sort of the lab has sort of two flavors. One flavor has to do with how we search and and uh, how we move our sensors as we search. So you, you often think of sensation as sort of a passive process. You're there and information flows into your body. But in fact, uh, sensation is, of course, active. I mean, animals are moving, they're foraging. And also the sensors that um, every, every animal uses, people uses, are also moving. Your eyes are constantly darting across the field, changing their position, maybe looking in the direction of, of some information, maybe just scanning um, you know, your nose and animals. It's moving to the side. You know, rodents in particular, which are the animals that we use, have a nose which goes from side to side, ears perk up. And rats, mice, other rodents, giant capybaras, they have whiskers that will sweep in front of them and sort of sweep out the space in front of them. So, so sensation is an active process, and it, it's an in, interesting engineering principle to understand what the underlying circuitry is. So that's that's a big part of the lab to understand that circuits. It, it's part of the lab that's these days is done in collaboration with a number of people. We sort of marked out a lot of projects. And just to give a flavor of what was unexpected is that breathing, which you normally think of the you know the vital rhythmic motion of, of life. It turns out that the the oscillator that drives breathing, 
which was found by a fellow named Jack Feldman about some 20 years ago, actually is also used to direct all these motions. So turning of the head, moving of the whiskers, movement of the nose is all locked to breathing. And we've, we've had a lot of fun sort of working out the neural circuitry mm-hmm. beneath that. That was, that was kind of a, a little gift from the gods, you might say, that's oh. uh, kept us employed. Nice. Does that mean it's automatic? Um, behaviors? I think it means that the, the search strategy could, could free run, you might say, outside of a conscious effort on your part. So all the, all the fundamental circuitry exists in the brainstem. And, you know, when neuroscience started up, you might say, as a serious profession, there was people studied the brainstem because, as you point out, it was sort of these autonomic behaviors. And then it went off and worried about deeper issues, object recognition, even things like consciousness. And, and it's sort of the hot areas turned into studying cortical activity. And that's great, except as, you know, the joke is you're starting in the middle of nowhere and you're going to the middle of nowhere. So the, the last, I would say, 10-ish years, I've seen a, a really revitalized effort towards these fundamental circuits because of advances in viruses that would you start at a muscle, go to a motor neuron that moves the muscle, yeah. go from the motor neuron to sort of control circuitry, and matter of fact, go all the way around the loop and get back to the sensor. So it, it has a certain intellectual appeal, a certain simplicity. I, I think it it's pulled a lot of us together. It pulled a colleague who's a virologist together because uh, Fan Wang, because it, it was a way for her to, to sort of apply her trade and, and with a little bit of knowledge of, of anatomy, she was sort of ahead of the rest of the, the world. Mm-hmm. It appealed to me because of a, sort of a background as an engineer Appeal to a close colleague I've been working with for many years, co-discovered this uh, 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 breathing uh, oscillator with uh, Martin Deschen. I think he just he just always he takes biology seriously, very reductionist. Once it gets back to basics, so yeah. that's so. I think every time a new technology comes around, that once you see something differently, a lot of times you want to go back and revisit old areas that weren't solved just because you have a, you have a new in, right? So that's, so anyway, along the way, this is, again, it's going back in time some 20 years. We were trying to make some measurements in cortex, right? Despite my poking fun at, uh, at neuroscientists becoming corticocentric. And we were using imaging techniques. This was, sort of before two photon microscopy sort of took over much of neuroscience and using these things called voltage sensitive dyes that were invented by a fellow named Larry Cohn at Yale. And we'd had a lot of fun on invertebrates, just looking at dynamics of neurons firing in different orders. And uh, colleague Carrie Delaney and I decided we push on and use these in uh, rat and we just started seeing a lot of extra variability, a lot of noise. And um, we wrote what I thought was possibly the most boring paper I ever wrote, just trying to uh-huh. get scrape something out of it. But a little bit later, the fellow who invented two-photon microscopy, actually Winfred Denk, said, why don't we just look at the blood flow? And this uh, began a, a great, you know, for me, a wonderful direction in science, also the start of a wonderful friendship. Mm -hmm. And 
it turned out that in fact, the movement of red blood cells was interfering with, with our signal, but it just kept on growing, you know, from measuring how blood was moving on a red blood cell by red blood cell basis. We became interested in the structure of the vasculature and the control of the vasculature. And, and that's sort of a second part of the lab. There's a mm-hmm. common brainstem control, but, you know, it's like having a business and you want a little bit of diversity because you get stuck on one thing, something else works. And somehow we've survived this way now for well, 20 years. So it's maybe- I do find control of the vasculature a really interesting subject because it's, well, it's so important for our brain function because it changes on like such a quick basis. Yes. Brain so energy hungry. Whenever it needs the energy, the vasculature has to supply it and the signaling needs to be quick and responsive. Yes. What, what are the main I mean, signaling pathways or neurotransmitters? I mean, there's all been a lot of review papers, and then you read them and you're left kind of empty because it's like nobody knew. There were th- things that made like one thing would make sense, like maybe where control structures were located, astrocytes mm-hmm. were located, but then the times would be off. But then a good colleague, Mark Nelson at, at the University of Vermont, University of Vermont is amusingly the smooth muscle capital of North America when it comes to research. And he had a beautiful paper. I think it's a good four years ago now, logged in at all. And it's a very simple mechanism. There's still a little bit of work to do to really dot all the I's. But but what Mark found is that the endothelial cells, the cells that form the lumen of the vessel, have in them a, a channel that's activated by voltage, just like the channels that cause impulses in neurons, except it leads to a negative going pulse instead of a positive mm-hmm. going pulse. So this is known as the inward rectifier potassium channel. The name's not really important. Mm-hmm. But basically, when a neuron is active, the axons cause the release when, when a pulse goes through of potassium. And assuming the space right around the blood vessel between the axon and the endothelial cell is small enough, potassium concentration can go very high. And if it hits about a number, it turns out to be around five, six millimolar, then all of a sudden the endothelial cell will put out this hyperpolarizing pulse, this negative going pulse. Okay, so Mark showed that this occurred and he could induce it with artificial means and that it spreads. And so that was the first time you saw clean data anywhere between neuroactivity and activity in the vasculature. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now there's a couple of missing things. So the conjecture is that this signal then goes up to the arteries on the surface of the brain that need to relax and let a little more blood in. Okay, so that is yet to be shown. Okay, it makes sense, but it's yet to be shown. The other thing is, is that the concentration of potassium you need is, is high, but it's localized. And there's some measurements in the literature, but for something so important, the measurements really need to get redone. So he's pushing on this because this sort of interlock with some research that we're going, we're, we're also trying to look at the spread of the signal. It's like a friendly competition. Science is a little bit like sports. You train with your friends and you compete with your friends. Yeah, and, and I, I think it's the way to be. 
if you look at it that way, you stay friends. And that's, I think, the mechanism now. It's really simple. It, it also explains why neurons of all different types could lead to increases in blood flow, because it's just the activity. It's not a special molecule. And, and I, um, so we'll see what happens. I think this is an old problem. It dates from 1895 in England. It's, it's about time it gets solved. It's kind of embarrassing. Yeah, it's, it's been there for a long time. Now, r- regarding the, um, the paper about um, the ex- extrasynaptic levels of dopamine, could you give a brief overview of what the paper showed? Okay, so uh, this paper, just by a slight bit of background for a second, this is outside the normal research of the laboratory, but the student involved in it, Conrad Fu, an excellent graduate student, uh, was to make measurements on uh, how a neuromodulator uh, affects blood flow. And we got sort of odd results and we started to do some control experiments. And then this project came out of it. So oftentimes the side issue, the control experiment becomes more interesting than the main question. Yeah, that's science. Like sometimes it leads lead you down random avenues, but yeah. brilliant in the end. So the idea is that, I mean, dopamine has a has like many neurochemicals in the brain, has has a multitude of uses. I mean, what use happens depends on what pathway the particular molecule is used in. And one pathway, of course, has to do with the control of, of motor activity. But another pathway really has to do that dopamine in parts of the midbrain and then the midbrain projecting up the cortex will first signal an unexpected reward. Like you're just sitting here and uh, do uh, someone gives you a candy bar your dopamine level will go up, okay? Or all of a sudden, I get a letter from the National Science Foundation. Oh, yeah. Your proposal was accepted. Your dopamine goes wild. And we all know about Pavlov's dog and that you can uh, be trained to associate an event with a good thing or a bad thing mm-hmm. coming over time. And it makes you either more vigilant or it gives you some sense of anticipation. And... Um, in the very early 90s, uh, around 92, Wolfram Schultz, scientist, actually now at, at UC London, did experiments where he showed that dopamine transitions from a signal of reward to a signal of anticipation of reward, okay. right? It was, uh, it was a prediction. It now became a predictor that a reward was going to... And this led to some very beautiful research. In, in trying to understand then how dopamine go up if you're anticipating a reward and then it got more sophisticated, how, how dopamine actually g- gives you an error in your expectation. And if you don't get the reward, it actually goes below the normal levels. It's a very sophisticated field. But there's one thing that is weird about this is that I mean, one of the defining aspects of biology in general and neuroscience in particular is noise. Synaptic, how neurons talk to each other is noisy. Sometimes pulses go through, sometimes they don't get through. Sometimes they happen spontaneously. This was seen in the earliest days of synaptic release. Spikes can occur with regularity, but actually spiking in cortex is very irregular. It is so irregular that this became a topic in its own right to understand how nature balances the difference between very large inputs. So 
I mean, if you move away from neuroscience and you look in a textbook and you see pictures of DNA all wrapped up, it's, it's just the, 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 once DNA begins to unwind a little bit to transcribe, it's just, it's just blowing out there. It's just this wonderful high temperature and tropic world. So noise is there, but, but this field had no noise. Dopamine had no sense of variability. It was odd. Okay, mm-hmm. just looking at it from the outside. So what Conrad discovered is that if the mouse is totally naive and it's, it's in an apparatus, okay, so we're not talking about just a, a 25-gram mouse. We're talking about a 25-gram mouse with indicators of dopamine that are have been injected into its cortex, um, a two-photon microscope to observe these indicators. So there's, you know, mm-hmm. a couple of hundred pounds of equipment in the room looking at this animal. But nonetheless, we see dopamine spikes, just boop, big jumps in dopamine mm-hmm. at physiological levels that are going off spontaneously at a high enough amplitude that these would be equivalent to the kind of impulses you would see during a Pavlovian training task, which is something we did. Mm -hmm. So we were very taken in by these spontaneous events. I mean, it seemed outside the norm in this field, you know, this field of dopamine reinforcement learning or word prediction era. And and we convinced ourselves these were real, that they, they weren't some artifact from the machinery. And then, of course, the question is, is this an epiphenomena or is this something that the animal actually uses like does the animal know this stuff is is happening maybe it's it's happening but there's no way for the animal to access it or use it right so uh what we did was that every time it was a, a dopamine pulse then we would give the animal a reward and we would try to coax the animal to make it not so random to actually have some control over these pulses and what we found out is that over so over time, we could convince the animal to put out a pulse, and then we raised the threshold. So it actually had to work harder to get the next reward. So it, it wasn't accidental, right? It wasn't a random event, and we were dependent on some statistical inference. We could just force it to work harder and harder and harder. Again, maybe too much sports as a kid. And, and then, indeed, the mouse would work harder and harder and harder and harder. And finally, it would get hard enough. The animal would stop and we'd, we'd ramp down our threshold and then it would start up again. So many indicators, uh, the average amount of dopamine in the brain, the rise in, in, in the amplitude of the pulses over time, a shift in the timing so that the animal finally produced these, um, learned that it would get a reward. It, it started... Uh, producing them enough so that the dopamine would would tend to lead the appearance of reward. All these factors took place. You come in the next day, you turn off the reward system. The dopamine levels just dribble down. You, you know, you go up and down. So at some time, you convince yourself you've done enough controls and that you believe it, and you you write a paper. Yeah, finally, and that was and that's it. Oh, nice and. Why do you choose dopamine and not acetylcholine or some other neurotransmitter? Well, no, that's a fair point. I mean, so dopamine has this special role in being connected with reward, with both the unexpected reward and as a signal 
of expectation of a reward. Acetylcholine is very heavily connected with with movement, and we've seen this in the past, and many people have seen this. Other molecules, we actually started by looking at the role of a molecule called noradrenaline, and that's been a messy story. So what sparked this was looking at the role of noradrenaline in controlling blood flow, and, and sometimes vessels get bigger and sometimes they got smaller. And it was for that reason that we we started to do controls. And then when we saw that we just we we couldn't understand the blood vessels in a simple way, but then we we found that there was spontaneous release of noradrenaline, and then we shifted to dopamine to see if if other molecules had spontaneous release. And then it was it was queer dopamine because of the tie to reinforcement learning. Dopamine was a molecule of interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Noradrenaline is a bit of an enigma. And even in Pavlovian conditioning, it's... Mm. Why do you think that it has different effects? Is that because um, noradrenaline might be released during stressful events that you inhibit flow to some areas? And mm. I don't know. We've spent a lot of time on it. <laughs> We've measured... We have a lot of data and no consistent story. And mm. the literature is, has a lot of data in both directions. So it's going to have to wait till another day mm. to, to, to figure out. I mean, I, we, we somehow, I don't know, just we're not doing the right experiment and not thinking well, but we, we mm. don't, uh, we haven't straightened it out. And what behaviors did you use to look at the spontaneous dopamine release? So when we start, first, there was no behavior. There was just an animal with absolutely nothing in its environment. Mm-hmm. But keep in mind, these animals are, um, you, you could argue uh, that it's not a natural condition. It's, it's head fixed. It's, oh. it's um, I don't know, it's probably the equivalent of flying Ryan Airlines at, at some level. And we need to do that in order to, to make the measurements, okay? I, I think going forward, we probably could do it with an animal just moving around. There's some very nice small cameras, but just the way we did it was head fixed. And then we could introduce, in some experiments, control experiments, we could introduce a spout, which would have a reward, even though it was dry. And you find out animals actually start to wick on their own. And you have to think of wicking. I mean, what this made us realize was that wicking is not just a way for animals to get fluid, but also a way to use their tongue almost as a whim and just see what's out there. Just try to touch the outside world. And a colleague of mine at Geneva, Karel Svoboda, had started using it this way also, that you could use it almost as a whim to probe the outside world. It's It's a very nice way that animals almost, you know, within half a day of training can be trained push their tongue in all different directions. So it's a nice way to understand the control of directionality of movement. Yeah. But anyway, after this was done, then we started training them. It's a simple task. There was no cue. It was as simple as you could get, much simpler than the traditional reinforcement learning experiments, where if they just, if the dopamine level increased up and crossed a threshold, they would get a liquid reward. So they would just be sitting there licking a spout and of course they could run if they wanted to we recorded that that's that seemed to have no impact on the dopamine and that was it this was ground zero simplicity Mm. 
And why do you think that animals have this spontaneous dopamine? So when we go to the first thing, and this is total conjecture now, because you haven't done these experiments yet. I mean, so my conjecture, so don't blame my colleagues, it's not right. Normally when there's this dopamine effect, it's an anticipation signal or an expectation signal, as, as said in the trade, that, that there's something good is likely to happen. Okay, you know, you get a call from a friend and expect to hear some good news. Maybe dopamine goes up. The dog hears a bell and expects to get food. So something has to drive you. It's a question raised by this colleague I mentioned before, Martin Deschen. Why are we curious? I mean, why do we go and seek out when there's no obvious reward out there? And so... The conjecture, which we'll try to test in an open field experiment, is that just in order to, to start to seek, to forage, if that's what you want to call curiosity, you have a false clue of a reward. So something is telling you to go out there. And just, it's this expectation of a reward. I mean, why climb a mountain? It's dangerous, right? Yeah. And, but you have this, expectation you'll get to the top you'll you'll be freezing in total pain but it'll be worth it <laughs> yeah just for like maybe a nice view and even if it's foggy you'll feel that sense of it's worth it in the end so my suggestion was that it's actually acting as a false signal of expectation of a reward mm-hmm. and this could lead animals to forage and suggesting it's a little bit like city and people. I mean, why do you, why do you explore? Why do you climb? Why do you do lots of things where logically there's no information a priori to suggest that there's any reward, but we do them. And sometimes there's no reward. Sometimes you fall in a crevasse and it's no fun. I think that's the reason we have the reward signal because otherwise we might not do stuff that could have that. If there was no reward signal, we'd only be concentrating on the negative of it. There wouldn't be a positive, which is the reward feeling. Yeah. So that's a thought. And we'll, I mean, truth be told, we're sort of in a holding pattern um, for a new student to come. The number of students is a bit down with COVID. Well, a bit down and they're a bit conservative about projects that they're picking. So. And how relatable is your research of the spontaneous dopamine signal to large animals and to humans in general? Like, do you think the same system would be in humans or larger mammals? Yeah, I mean, the dopamine signals originally were discovered in monkey, in primates. I mean, again, this goes back to the work by Wolfram Schultz, uh, actually, or, or Schultz and uh, Rodolfo Romo, who's in Mexico City. The basic body plan, the basic layout of nervous systems in all vertebrates is essentially the same. I mean, of course, there's different cell types develop, different structures develop within different importances, but the fundamental circuits have remained constant. And the more closely people look with with genetics for for commonalities and cell types, the more they see this. And certainly within mammals, that's even more specific than just, just vertebrates. That, you know, what if you're studying some basic circuit, particularly something concerned with something as fundamental as, as a reward system, 
and the plasticity perhaps of synapses. This has gone over very well. So even though the original experiments were done in monkeys, I mean, the world has, for the most part, moved away from monkeys and on to studying these and other behaviors in rodents. And, and then they discover actually rodents are a lot more sophisticated in terms of their behavior than if people study monkeys would have liked to admit it at first. So I'm assuming we work the same way, right? Yeah. Uh, you, yeah. can't, you can't wire up a person with a dopamine probe. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be very um, ethical. Like, I was going to ask, is there a way to test this in humans or would it not be really possible? Okay, so a couple of things would have to become true. So the, the source, okay, so we measured the dopamine within cortex where there are projections from dopamine centers in deep structures of the brain called substantia nigra uh, pars mm -hmm. compacta and the ventral tegmentum area. I mean, they're really a continuum anatomically. And it's not unreasonable that for, quote unquote, a normal person, whoever she is, could be sitting at an MRI magnet, which is not exactly walking around the room, but you could look at changes in blood flow in these areas and infer increases in neural activation secondary to these, you know, so-called functional MRI signals. And, but at least with the person, you could ask them questions. You know, you, you can imagine, you can have them go through various scenarios through mental images. And if they arrive at certain conclusions, you could give them a reward. So you'd have to do a little bit of work to confirm that, um, you know, one of a number of fMRI techniques now of functional MRI techniques could accurately determine activity in these regions. So then I think you can make some progress with people. It, it might be kind of fun. It would be. And regarding this research, are you looking to further develop it? Because you mentioned looking at a free-moving animal. Are you looking to do that and to also test for other neurotransmitters? Yeah, it's admittedly off topic from the main projects in the lab. And one has to be, you know, there's, there's a balance. Uh, we, we have a commitment and, and a very strong interest in keeping certain projects. Once we found this, it, it just struck me as, as so interesting. I became, my wife says I became possessed and was just working with Conrad very heavily to, to get this done. And um, because it was a little bit against the grain of, of the standard um, the standard party line in the dopamine field, I don't mind saying we had a little bit of trouble getting the paper published. Mm -hmm. And I, I was, again, as much as I could be, I was kind of relentless. You know, referee complained, I was all over it. So it, it, it shows how, how um, determination works because you published it and it's a good paper. Yeah. I would like to, every year there's new neuroscience students, graduate students come in. This is what I talked about. I, I said, this would be a fun thing to oh. work on. It's, you know, it has a risk, but, it, you know. Um, Most interesting science normally does hold a risk. If you're, if you're not yeah. risking it in some way normally, then it's not really yeah. like cutting edge in that sense. Because there's always a bit of that unknown kind of there. And that's the interesting part. Yeah, so it was. So I'm, I'm hoping to pursue it. I mean, that's the plan. Mm -hmm. Okay, I, there's just a lot of things that you work on, and then you have an idea, and then sometimes it takes a, some time goes by. Like even aspects of this blood flow project, there were mm -hmm. things we noticed already 
uh, my God, you know, we noticed them like 20 years ago, but it wasn't until like five or six years ago we finally started up again. I mean, you need the right person, the right technique, and then you sort of get going again. So um, I, everybody does science differently. I kind of, I kind of view it as a long game, yeah. and maybe not the typical approach, but it's, anyway, still doing it. So. It works. <laughs> like you've been doing it for so long, it seems to work. Yeah, it works. Yeah. So, excuse me. What other research are you planning on doing? So, getting back to these brainstem circuits, we, we actually had a meeting today. We had a review. So it was a good time to catch up. Um, we're very interested in how, what the circuitry is that coordinates all the movements that, that have to do with searching and, and, and foraging and sensing. So I say the number one topic, we know that the breathing clock not only drives breathing, but it's, it's one coordinating oscillator in the brain. And that was, that was an exciting finding. I think we are... We have a pretty good idea how the whole circuitry works. I mean, even to the point of, of making a nice mathematical model, which is a lot of fun. Huh? But there's another great oscillator in the brain. I mean, it goes phylogenetically back to the probably the swallowing oscillator that you had in fish who are, as they move, are constantly pumping water and filtering it. And that's the chewing oscillator. And it, it's chewing is completely incommensurate with breathing. There are some behaviors like licking that preferentially could lock to chewing, like literally when your mouth is closed and you're moving food around. It's as fundamental as it gets. You got to eat. Yeah. You can't eat yogurt you your eat whole life. Yeah. So that oscillator, I mean, there was some nice work identifying what makes you chatter, like in cold weather, but the oscillator itself remains to be discovered. So that's going to be a big push to discover this last great oscillator in the brainstem. And this is very important to us. So that sort of has, I, th I think that's one of these things of, you know, going to sort of overwhelm us in terms of our effort. And the other thing that I think is very much driving our passions, getting back to the second issue of blood flow. So there are very close to the breathing oscillator. There's a, a region of the brain. It has a terrible name called RVLM that actually controls cortical blood flow at some level, depending on the oxygen concentration. It's what keeps you alive if you try to, you know, climb to high mountains. And so the, the blood vessels on the surface of your cortex, at least, are all oscillators. There's a lot of oscillators in this business. And they're just sitting there. And, you know, unlike breathing in a rodent, which is very fast, it's like 10 times a second, these oscillators in you and in rodents are at one-tenth of a second, a hundred times slower. Oh. But, but, but these oscillators are critical, okay, was really sort of removing debris from the brain. Turns out as a byproduct, essential for what's called resting state fMRI, for telling us which parts of the brain are actually electrically in contact with each other because the electrical activity in regions of cortex actually has a very slow activity also that varies about once every 10 seconds. And it mm -hmm. tends to entrain these blood flow oscillators in the artery. Mm -hmm. And so places in the brain that are connected, like by a, a long track, like a white matter track, mm -hmm. will often have similar blood flow patterns. 
because they are electrically in contact and that makes their vessels go up and down together. So this is the basis of something called resting state functional magnetic resonance imaging. It's, it's used to detect these patterns in the brain. And th this turns out to be an interesting physics problem because one blood vessel that oscillates is trying to entrain another blood vessel but then the neurons underneath are trying to entrain it as well. So there's a, that has us interested. We, we have a nice in on this. There's a group of collaborators who, who are working on it. So I, these are sort of two main projects going in the lab. They have oscillators and, and a little bit of brainstem control as a, as, as a common feature and a little bit of technology as a common feature. I wonder, could these brain oscillators, can they be modified by electrical stimulation? That's, that's a good question. So there's, there's work by a couple of people. It's, her last name is Sai at MIT and Megan mm -hmm. Niedergaard, that these oscillations are responsible for moving debris out, out of the brain, somewhat like the lymph system. And Sai found that, in fact, if you drive the system, not, not with an electrical stimulus, but just with sensory stimulus on the outside world, you can improve how debris is leaving the brain. It's on the one hand, a little controversial, but sort of very exciting because it, it may have some impact on things like beta amyloid plaques, mm, Alzheimer's. That's why I was thinking like neurogenic yeah. diseases. It could be used to help with that. Mm. So, so Macon has some data that uh, suggests that this is really acting as like the, you know, you, you, you might mm. say the, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's really the sewer system of the brain, the limb system of the brain, but yeah. that's, in, you know, that's important. That helps society was learning how to build sewers mm -hmm. and we'll see how it goes. It's, mm -hmm. uh, I find her very creative and I think there's, there's going to be some truth to this. Mm -hmm. And then it's really a matter of, of the best way of driving it. So yeah, electrical stimulation is a little hard because, you know, if you have outside electrodes, they're really not acting in a very specific. Yeah. So if you could use a stimulus in a clever way, that's a lot safer and a lot cleaner. Moving on for your research to just advice that you would give to students. So for students who are interested in research in this area, what advice would you give them for coming into this area? High school. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, in high school, it's a little bit of a balance of you're young, so you could learn things very quickly. So you, you really want to try to learn as much as you can. And, and in that sense, I, I really think you want to stick with basics. I mean, I'm a big, I think no matter what you do in life, you want the best possible command of English and writing or whatever language you're best in, maybe two languages. And you also want to learn math. The level of high school, I mean, science could be a frill. I mean, it's probably more important to understand, you know, history and, and politics and just, and my daughter is political consultant, so we talk a lot, but, you know, I think most of her friends have totally lost knowledge of the Enlightenment and Rousseau and John Locke. And I, I think it's very important that you should learn civics in high school and you should also learn math like crazy. And, you know, and, in college, you can start to take science or at least take science in high school to get just to find something that gets you, you passionate. Mm -hmm. But you really have to get the basics down. And the younger you are, you should just fly as fast as you can. I mean, don't pay attention to teachers trying to slow you down. You know, once you get to college, I think all, you know, by the time we are even, we've had some great 
fun with students who have come to the lab as like second year students, sophomores in the U.S. system. And, you know, they don't know anything, but they sort of help out in the lab. And by the time they're seniors, they, the, the best of them do their own individual research projects. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not even the details of the projects. It's just the idea of, of starting from nowhere. And it's a sense of accomplishment thing that is very important to learn is completion. You're never going to learn that in any class. I guess if that's my advice to a young scientist, so to speak, it's to understand what it means to ask a question and then answer the question and answer it in a complete way and and write a paper up, write a project up, write a book report up, do something. It's... It's a scientific process these days, asking a question, the right question and then answering it in yeah. a full way. Yeah, just get this into your, I think people have to get this into their gestalt. I mean, you could, you could be a writer, an artist. You could, you know, so it means producing paintings and a show. You could just having it go from the beginning to end. I think completion is very important. We, we talk about that even in selecting students and there's the body of thought of who has the best grades or best exam scores and then like who actually did something some activity from from soup to nuts yeah that's more important than just yeah getting 95 percent in an exam yeah definitely definitely i think that's the that's been the consensus based on who goes on to some accomplishment i mean it's hard to deep enough records to always figure this out but maybe that's the thing we should keep track of maybe what book are you currently reading? Oh man, this is a little embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I, I have to say, reading over the last two years has been very bad because uh, the pandemic has made life in the lab about 10% harder. Mm-hmm. So the last book I read was about two years ago, and it was Whoa. something I should have read from back in high school. I read The Naked and the Day by Norman Mailer, which was, you know, about this taking of a Japanese island during World War II, which was a little because my father fought in, in a Pacific theater in World War II. So I, I've been very bad about, I've been very good about reading The Economist every week. Oh, they do quite interesting articles. So. Yeah, but very bad about reading novels. And what else do you do in your spare time as a scientist? And what do you recommend for other scientists to do? <laughs> probably read more that's for sure <laughs> but read more scientific literature or non-scientific well literature. i think both I, I like to skim a lot of journals and then something will catch my eye and i'll and i'll, and I'll look through the paper and look at the figures and it's it's a you know it used to be going to the library which was a little more disciplined uh, because okay. you'd you'd walk through you pick up a little stack of journals and you'd mm-hmm weave through them and then talk to friends and they weave through a different stack of journals and you sort of knew what was going on. I mean, today you often, you do it by electronically weaving through journals, um, social. Um, you could have like an online virtual session of leafing through online. Yeah. It's still the same feeling though. I know what you mean. Yeah, I'd rather just go for a walk with somebody and, yeah, and, and uh, chat. You know, I swim, you know, in younger days I did, uh, well, I used to climb, I, you know, spent a lot more time outside, oh. but I'm 
I'm pretty, I have a lot of titanium in me, so I'm oh. just, my joints could take swimming these days, but, mm. but not a lot of hard pounding. There's a lot of scientists, particularly a lot of physicists and mathematicians who were climbers. I think it was, they just viewed it the same way. It was problem solving. It's right? a good activity to do. Do you mean bouldering or do you mean climbing with the climbing rope? Bouldering, like, I mean, this is a long time ago yeah. as a kid. I mean, there were some nice bouldering areas here, Mount Woodson and San Diego. And, and then there was, there were areas where there was uh, Joshua Tree, where there was sort of one pitch climbs and Takits, which was maybe up to seven pitch climbs. And there were places you could get up at five in the morning, go out, spend the day climbing and, you know, come back and you know, sleep in a warm bed. So yeah, feel great. Like after climbing for a while, you get yeah, tired. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody has their passions. You mm. know, I, I, I think sports is a good, I, I think you need to go into oxygen debt every day a little bit. It kind of relieves your brain of, of stress. Yeah. Climbing in general, you're fully focused on that and not on anything else. Yeah. 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 You could die. So you're very oh, focused. Yeah. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Was it Scotch? I can never say his name properly. Oh, Schultz. I could, um, I could send you those papers as yeah. well. No problem. Yeah. That'd be great. Just gonna write that down. Yeah. And, I mean, there's also there's a ton of reviews on um, dopamine. I mean, it's 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 an industry. I would say. Um, yeah, it's it's every like dopamine one of the neurotransmitters which is known by everyone. Like it's yeah, out there. It's out there. I'll I'll send you I'll send you um like a few reviews. Thanks. Um there's there's rather scholarly exhaustive mm. review by uh by Schultz and, and then mm. there's um oh. I'm blanking on this fellow's name. It's a fellow who was at uh, Howard Hughes, Geneva. There's a nice review. More towards movement. But uh, I'll send you those reviews. Yeah, because I, yeah. I, I love, like, this is the reason I do this podcast, so that I can learn about science. I just love reading about all these yeah. wonderful different areas. It just keeps my mind open to the areas. So what, what are, besides the, the podcast, what are you doing? What am I? So um, I'm currently... I've, I'm a master's student doing a neuroscience master's, obviously. Um, yeah. And yeah, apart from like science stuff, I do a science writing as well. So as a freelance writer, and um, I'm also starting a few um, startups to um, diagnostic startups to diagnose um, Parkinson's disease early. And have you heard of norovirus? No. Oh, so it's it's like a diarrheal disease that I'm I'm developing a startup for as well. So yeah, that's what I do in my spare time. If anything else, that's really what I do in my spare time. So I love it's science related. Still, you can kind of see. Yeah, I see. Where where you where are you in school? Uh, masters. Oh, you mean yeah. where 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 am I yeah. doing? University of Leeds. Leeds. Okay. United Kingdom. Yeah. 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 Do you know what? Have you heard of Leeds? I heard of Leeds. Uh, um, that's that's like that's an achievement, really. <laughs> I, I haven't uh, 
I mean, I've been to a few places. I've been to Sheffield and been to Brighton. Sheffield, and... that's where I did my undergraduate degree. So. Oh, I see. Interesting. Okay. And yeah, I, took a, I remember I got there at about six in the morning. So I took a long, long walk before this uh, meeting started in the evening. Oh, it was no. nice. It's a nice town. I like it. The peak. That's where the steel... Did you, get, did you get time to visit the Peak District or... Yeah. So, and then there, let's see, I stopped at a museum. There was like a steel industry museum yeah. there, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. So, and uh, I mean, Brighton, I sort of had to go to because, um, you know, New Brighton or Brighton Beach, New York was obviously named after Brighton. <laughs> you wanted to see what it was named after. Yeah. I haven't uh, been to Brighton. So, yeah. Well, it's it's okay. I mean, it was just kind of, it was just kind of fun. It was interesting. I mean, it was yeah. basically, <laughs> it was the off season. So, I mean, they ended up in some hotel with, you know, mirrors on the ceiling. Oh, and, <laughs> oh, yeah. and, and London, of course, I've been to a few times. Yeah, it's very nice. Obviously. Yeah. Sort of playground for rich bankers, but, oh. but kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice visiting place. But yeah. Busy. Okay, this was yeah. fun. It was great talking to you. Like the, the podcast, I'll I'll send you a link to it once I've public published the episode. And yeah, okay. it, it was great talking to you. I can't wait to read the papers you send over. Okay, do it. Was, this was a lot of fun. I wish you well. Let me know how things go. Go I on for a PhD will. if you like science. Oh, it's, it's, it's worth it. That, that's definitely my aim. Like, yeah, and I'm going to stay up to date with your research. Thanks. Bye. <sighs> bye bye. It feels good to be back on schedule with interviewing neuroscientists again. I'm learning while also helping you learn. That's great, right? So dopamine is the reward transmitter, which means whenever you do anything rewarding, think, ooh, I just got a bit of dopamine released. But Professor David Kleinfield's research is even more important because it shows that mice were able to control their dopamine signaling by causing it to activate in response to a stimulus or when it wasn't even there. This makes sense as there's a common experiment called Pavlovian learning, which is where an animal, the classic example is a dog, is given a reward whenever a bell is sounded. And then you remove the reward and sound the bell. The dog has linked the reward to the bell. So even without the reward being there, the dog will produce saliva. David Kleinfield's research adds to this because it shows that the signaling behind such a behavior can be controlled by the animal itself. It makes sense on a survival standpoint, as we need it to be able to motivate ourselves to pursue something, even when the outcome could be unknown. It would explain how animals are able to make themselves forage, even when they don't know if they're going to find food or shelter or so on. I also found it fascinating that some movement behaviors are automatic. Now, the foraging behaviors are in the same brain regions to do with breathing and heart rate. This is in the area of the brain called the brain stem, because it's like the stem of a plant. 
because it doesn't base the brain. And I also like to think of it because all brain activity stems from this region. Why? Because if you couldn't breathe or pump your blood properly, how do you expect the brain to work? We also re- we also talked about his research looking into blood flow in the brain. He likes to keep himself busy. The topic, as we mentioned, that has been discussed for a long time is the blood flow and how it works. But it's controlled by many cell types, but the mechanisms are quite simple, as they found that is to do with parasites, which are the main cells involved. I enjoyed his advice, which was to explore the fields you are interested in and don't let a teacher hold you back. Also, I agree with his advice to become good at mathematics, English, and culture studies, such as politics, which are usually forgotten. And to do this as soon as possible, then you can concentrate on the science once you get into like college. The psych, because this is because science in early years is mainly just learning facts and not true science. True science is experimenting with the knowledge you know using rigorous techniques to uncover something new. And that can be something new to you. It doesn't have to be fully new to the idea of science, which in a lot of cases it is. And you can build this skill yourself and hone it over time. It's much more fun than memorizing names and mechanisms. So go out there, learn, experiment, try to uncover new information through debating with yourself, reading more, talking to other people. His one caveat, though, was reading. He did know it was important, but he did lack the reading schedule. But he did read The Economist, which does keep him up to date with worldly affairs. Don't forget to check out the links, which I'll put in the description. I would also be happy to talk to anyone about any questions you have in regards to the science. And if you or someone you know wants to come on the podcast, then get in touch. Be sure to also share the podcast and comment if you liked it. I also welcome constructive feedback. Emphasis on the word constructive. I want to improve this podcast for you listeners. So if there's a way I can, just tell me. With that, it's the end of episode seven. And I look forward to exploring another paper bringing to light the brilliance of the brain through new neuroscience research.